John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tim. If you'd like to follow along, I invite you to open up to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We've now come to our fifth of our six-week series on holiness. And over the last couple of weeks, we have seen, or last several weeks, we've seen how a holy God of the universe called out and cleansed an unholy people for himself and how this chosen people This royal priesthood, this holy nation, as part of this new identity they have received, have been given this high calling of showing an unholy world what a holy God is like. And then last week we saw that that to enable this and empower this mission, God has given his people the gift of the Holy Spirit to allow them to progressively grow in holiness so that they can fulfill this mission that he has given them. Now, my hope is that up to this point, I have been encouraging you, I have been stirring up within you this understanding of the nature and necessity of holiness for God's people. But my heart's desire for this fifth of six weeks in holiness, my my heart's desire for this morning is that not only that you would be encouraged to pursue holiness, but that I would stir up within you a hunger for holiness, that you would long to be more holy. And with that said, what we're going to do, because there is no way in my own strength and in my own effort, I'm going to be able to accomplish that. I'm going to pray that the Lord would bless the preaching and the teaching of his word to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Father, you are a holy God, a holy God, Father, with an incredible amount of grace and mercy that you would call an unholy people to yourself, that you would make them holy, that you would help them grow in holiness, Father. I just pray, Father, this morning as we look at John 15, 8 through 11, Father, that you would enable us, Father, to understand the joy of holiness, that you would grow us, Lord, as a people in our ability to glorify your son and, Father, to walk in a way that would benefit 
and edify us and help and glorify him. And in your name we pray. I ask for your help this morning. Amen. Has anyone ever said something like this to you? Be careful about praying for patience. (laughs) Anybody ever had someone say that to them? Now, usually when they say, be careful about praying for patience, what they're saying is that if you pray for patience, beware because God just might put you in situations and circumstances in which you might learn patience, right? But I want to ask a question kind of that maybe calls into question that request this morning. I want to maybe look a little deeper because if you ever stop to think about what that comment is actually saying, it's communicating that patience, an essential aspect of godliness, a fruit of the Spirit, is not worth the pain and the aggravation of enduring frustrating circumstances. Or to put it another way, it's saying that it's better to be an impatient person than to deal with circumstances that God would use to fashion us into someone who is rich in patience. Or to state it even more succinctly, the cost of holiness isn't worth it. And whether we would admit it or not, it's likely that this lie has settled like a cancer at some level into our minds, slowly sapping our desire for holiness. So when the author of Hebrew tells us, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Our response to that is, yeah, no, thank you. I'm happier with just a little holiness. I'm happier without that peaceful fruit that you're talking about. And it's because that idea is so prevalent in Christianity today. And I, I want to say, at some level, it is so subtly infected probably all of our minds at some, in some small way. That is why we need to hear Jesus' words in verses 8 through 11. Because here he makes it plain that far from hindering our joy, holiness is actually how we pursue it. Let me say that again. Far from hindering our joy, holiness is actually how the people of God grow in their joy in God. Or as the Puritan Matthew Henry once said, those only who are, are, those are only are happy, truly happy, that are holy, truly holy. Goodness and holiness are not only the way to happiness, but happiness is itself. Now I realize that this idea might need some defending and if you're you grew up like me there's a part of you that even feels like that's wrong. How are you equating holiness with joy and happiness? Aren't we supposed to pick between the two in the Christian life? 
But in these verses, Jesus gives us three reasons why bearing fruit, and by bearing fruit, he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. He's talking about holiness, why holiness is not just a throwaway or antithetical to your happiness. It is actually essential to true happiness. And we're going to see that for three reasons, okay? So if you're doubting me this morning, we're going to look at three reasons why your holiness is essential to true, true happiness in the Christian life. The first is this. It's because our holiness is how we glorify God. Our holiness is how we glorify God. Now, I don't know what tradition some of you come from, and I don't know if you've been raised in church. I don't know. What I do know is that when we use that language, glorify God, immediately we think that sounds like religious, pious-sounding language, and so some of us may even kind of disconnect from that. But what I want to do is just mention this morning that if you read Scripture a lot from beginning to end, what you're going to see is that this idea of glorifying God is the essential purpose of humanity. So we see in Genesis 1 that God makes mankind in his own image. You guys remember that? In his own image? What does that mean? Well, theologians have debated this for years, but I want to say that one of the clear implications of being made in his image is that you were made to reflect his glory. So just like if you go to the city of Washington and you look around and there are all these images or statues of all these great men meant to be in their likeness to point to their glory and what they did, so you and I were set up on earth to point to the glory of God. Okay? And then you get into the Ten Commandments after sin enters the world and it's marred that image. And you see in the Ten Commandments, the first three of those commandments are all what? They're directed at the glory of God that we would have no other gods before him, that we wouldn't make any idols, that we would make sure that we are portraying God as glorious above all. And this has led Christians down, to the, down through the ages to summarize the sole purpose of humanity in this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now that's an amazing statement. and should lead us to ask the question, well, how do we do that? How do we fulfill the central purpose God has given us? And in these verses, Jesus explains, beginning in verse 8, that he says, and he says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so proved to be my disciples. And so apparently one of the central ways that the people of God glorify and honor and exalt and magnify the God who made us and redeemed us and loves us is to bear much fruit. Now by bear fruit, I think he's referring here to the fruit of the Spirit discussed last week. He's talking about a life that is full of love and joy and peace and patience. It is a life that is continually growing and producing this kind of fruit. And the more fruit, ultimately, it seems to indicate the more glory to God. Do you all see that? So how we glorify the God, God is that we bear much fruit. So the question we need to ask is how? How does it glorify God that you and I bear fruit? 
And I think there's two answers that immediately seem to come to mind. The first is because it fulfills his original design and purpose for humanity. To reflect to the world what our God is like. You see, the more, the more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient we become, the more we look like Jesus, the more these traits are reflected in our daily lives, the more clearly we portray them to the world what God is like. Despite, the world, despite what the world says, sin isn't the spice of life. It's what has marred and defaced us as image bearers that points to and, and, and stops us from pointing to his glory. And so as we are restored, as we bear much fruit, we increasingly give the world and the heavenly audience a clearer sense of what God is like, right? So you and I are all like this masterpiece that has received this terrible defacing by sin. And that the process of bearing fruit is the process of scrubbing that painting, wiping the graffiti off that statue so that it's more clearly pointing to what God is genuinely like. Because you and I aren't supposed to be loving, joyful, patient, all this stuff because God just wants us to be, but because that's who God is. Because that's what he is like. So the first thing that us bearing fruit does is it enables us to clearly point to the God who made us and his glory. But secondly, if we understand what Jesus has been saying in the preceding verses about the branch needing to abide in the vine to bear fruit, then we see that any fruit, any holiness in our lives cannot possibly come from us, but only from the vine and for his glory. You see, if our increasing righteousness, our progressive holiness, our fruit bearing, which are all synonyms, were a work of our strength, then it would glorify us. But if it's produced by his strength, his Holy Spirit at work in us, then ultimately he gets the glory. Just like an artist gets more glory than the paintbrush that he uses or the canvas which he paints upon. And that is why self-righteousness, though it might look good and moral on the outside, is ultimately opposed to true holiness because self-righteousness works in our strength for our glory while genuine holiness works in the strength of God and ultimately for his glory, right? In other words, God is glorified by our fruit bearing because both the means and the end point ever more clear, point ever more clearly to his glory, his goodness, and his power. Using the analogy of John 15 that we just read, the father is the gardener tending his plants, pruning and desiring that it produces much fruit, and the son is the vine, the source of that growth and fruit. But we have been given this privilege of being these branches attached to the vine that bear fruit. And we are the branches that the Father delights to see heavy laden with much fruit of holiness. And the truth is, if this sounds boring to you or this doesn't even sound like, why should I pursue this? Let me just say this. If you are abiding in the vine of Jesus, if his sap is running through you, if the Spirit of Christ is in you, if you are abiding in Him, then you will want what He wants. 
If you are abiding in Jesus, then you're going to want what he wants. You're going to hate what he hates. And I'm going to tell you that the heartbeat of Jesus throughout the time of his ministry on earth and in now is the glory of the Father. He says as we're entering into He's approaching and anticipating his death in John, uh, anticipating his death in John 12, 27. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus went to the cross, yes, for the love of people, but first and foremost for the glory of the Father. And we need to recognize that when we abide in that vine, our great desire and delight will be that the Father is glorified by everything in our lives. And part of what holiness is, is growing in these new holy desires by abiding in Christ so that I would rather my Father be glorified than I walk in comfort now here on this earth. We have a God who went to the cross to show us that with clarity. And if he, we are abiding in him, that will be the fruit. And it will be satisfying. And which brings us to the second reason we should desire holiness. It's how we abide in Christ's love. It's how we abide in Christ's love. Now, up to this point, there's been something interesting. If you've read John 15, 1 through 11, he seemed to make the point very clear that if you are going to obey, then you need to abide, right? That, that's kind of the order. You're not going to bear any fruit unless you abide. The branch needs the vine. But here, he almost seems to flip that whole idea on his head, and he says, if you are going to abide, then you need to obey, so we read, beginning in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Now, okay, let me just say right now, this is one of those statements that's just so jam-packed here. Like, I, I don't, we could do a whole sermon on this, Right? We're not going to this morning. It's just going to be one point, but I'm going to try to pack a whole sermon into this one point. So hang on, all right? This is just such a, a profound statement, and we've got to unpack this, all right? First, Jesus begins with, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I mean, sometimes we skip back over this because there's so much talk of love in the Bible, but just we need to take a moment and pause on what's being said here. He's using the Father's love for him as the analogy for the model of his love for us. He loves us like he's been loved by the Father. Now, we don't need to miss this because what he's saying is that the self-giving outpouring of love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit that has existed in eternity past, that predates humanity, that predates the universe, that predates time. It is the most powerful, the most perfect, the most pure love that we can even possibly comprehend and really beyond our comprehension. He is saying that love that moved the Father to create the world for his Son, this holy love between divine beings like an eternally happy divine family has now been poured out on you and me. 
The way the Father loves the Son, the Son loves us. We have been loved like the eternal Father loves the perfect and divine Son. And what did you and I do to deserve this love? Nothing. We have received it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. It has been poured out on us. And this is the place where John starts when he wants to talk about the love. And next he moves and he says something really interesting. He says, abide in my love. Now the word abide, as we've seen, simply means to remain in. But in John's usage so far in this chapter, remember, what has he been talking about? He says a branch abides in what? The vine, right? And so when he uses the word abide, he's not using like remain in, like you remain in a room. He's using it, I think, more organically, more agriculturally. I think he's using it like this idea, to remain so as to draw nutrients and strength and life from something. In other words, when Jesus says, abide in my love... Jesus is not saying, and then he'll say, talk about obedience later. He's not saying, or obey, or I'll stop loving you. He's saying, don't stop drinking in, living from, and being sustained and motivated by my love. You see, the power and motivation of the Christian life comes from a place of deeper satisfaction and enjoyment of Christ's love. Do you want to abide in Christ's love? You need to enjoy Christ's love. Do you want to make much of Christ? Delight in the love that he has for you. Don't treat it as this thing like, yeah, I know, I'm just, I'm saved. Like God saved me. It's it's, it's an amazing thing. I'm really happy about it. (laughs) Like if you want to walk in the joy of Christ, We have to get to a place where the love of Christ means so much more to us. And he's saying that the way we do that, and this seems so counterintuitive, is that we obey. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He's making a critically important point that every child of God has received this incredible gift, this love that is unending, this love that is unfathomable, that they need to be able to drink in, abide in, live from the way a branch abides in the vine. And it just reminds me of uh, Paul's prayer, Ephesians 3, where Paul prays, To these Christians that have received Christ's love, he says that you would be rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying there that not only would they just know intellectually about God's love, but that they would be rooted in God's love in such a way that they would be filled with all the fullness of God, right? Do you see that connection? It's not as if it's just like, oh, I want to feel better about myself. That's why I need to have more love. Like, understanding and living from the love of God, the love of Christ, is part of how we walk in the fullness of holiness. And he's saying, how do we do that? Well, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So what's he saying here? He's making the important point that though every child of God has received an incredible love, our present enjoyment and satisfaction and sustenance from it is conditional upon our growing obedience to his word. He wants to help us see that by giving no thought to obeying God's commands or by harboring unrepentant, unacknowledged sin, by allowing bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, lust, laziness, pride, selfishness, unknown sin on our part to just exist. It doesn't remove God's love from us, but it does remove us from our present enjoyment of his love. And I want to mention this because there is a, a growing theology that says if I understand the grace of God, part of what it means is that I can sin freely. That I truly understand how saved by grace I am when I walk with no concern and no care for my holiness. Because that's the sign that I'm truly saved because I'm just free grace. But I think someone who's been genuinely saved understands that the more grace we receive, the more we understand his love, the more we want to walk in obedience because we understand that that is how we enjoy more of his presence. Because when we walk in just open disobedience or with no concern for obedience, it breaks our fellowship and intimacy with Christ. It introduces distance into our relationship with him. Just like a parent who has a disobedient child doesn't disown the child when they disobey, but that child's enjoyment of their parent's love is minimal. Or as J.C. Ryle says, a believer may as soon expect to feel the sun's rays upon a dark and cloudy day as feel strong consolation in Christ when he does not follow him fully. Let me say that again. A believer may as soon expect to feel the sun's rays upon a dark and cloudy day as feel strong consolation in Christ when he does not follow him fully. In other words, here's the point. If you want to enjoy Christ's love more, seek to be more obedient. Make it your aim to increasingly love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus won't love you more. He's already given you a love that you can't possibly comprehend, but you will understand and drink in and enjoy that love more as you seek to move towards him in obedience. Now, I want to do just last part of this point is just give you three maybe ways that keeping his command helps you abide in his love. First, because obedience is an act of faith and love towards God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so by every act of obedience, we are showing we both believe him and love him. And though our love to God is always in response to his love for us, when we take a smallest of step towards him, he always blesses us with more of his presence. Second, because when we really make obedience a priority, we begin to see how far you fall short. Now, this might not sound like a good thing, 
Well, one of the things that has become clear to me is like the more I want to grow in holiness, the more I'm like, God, let me get your words in my mind. Let me get them on my heart. One of the things that happens is when the light of the law shines on me, I begin to remember more clearly that I'm a sinner. Amen? Is that a bad thing or a good thing? Is that a bad thing or a good thing? Why? Because when you recognize that you are a sinner, and yet you realize that there is an amazing, incredible, copious amounts of grace that will, will cover you because of the love that Christ has for you, what will happen is two, you'll begin to two, see two things. You'll begin to realize how much you need him. And you'll begin to realize how greatness is his grace and love for you. See, part of the reason so many of us cannot sing amazing grace from the bottom of our lungs is because we don't know how amazing his grace is because we don't pursue obedience that much. If we want to see his grace, his love as amazing, begin to try to be holy. Begin to see how far you fall short. And he's going to make it clear to you how great his love and his mercy and his peace and his desire for you are. As Jesus told the Pharisees, he who is forgiven little loves little. And this was not his encouragement to be like, hey, go sin a lot. It was his way of saying, if you want to grow in your love, you need to understand how much you've been forgiven. And so as God's people, we want to be a people that are pursuing obedience so we can see ourselves for who we truly are. We can see our desperate need of God's grace and his love, which he showers upon us day in and day out. And finally, it will help you rely on Jesus more because Jesus becomes more than someone we pray to when we're in a tough spot. He becomes our daily help and support as we come to him early and often with our needs, our weakness, our ability, because intimacy with Jesus and dependence on Jesus are inextricably connected. Let me say that again. Intimacy with Jesus and independence on Jesus are inextricably connected. If you would know Jesus and enjoy Jesus more, you're going to grow in a daily understanding of your dependence upon him because reliance on Jesus helps us enjoy Jesus. And that brings us to our third and final reason that we should hunger for holiness, and that is it's how we walk in the fullness of joy. It's how we walk in the fullness of joy. Now, if you have not been paying at all, pay attention at all up to this point, now's the time, okay? Five of you just tuned in, all right. This is it because this is the climax. This is kind of where it's all been moving to. It is holiness that helps us understand how we walk in the fullness of joy. I read a marriage book one time that said, what if God did not make marriage to make you happy, but more to make you holy? Anybody ever heard that quote? It's actually a great book on marriage. And, and, and I think I agree with most of what it's saying. And even the essential question, he's saying like, hey, marriage is not meant to fundamentally just kind of satisfy you and fulfill you. It is actually intended to be a gift of God in order to sanctify you. But in saying that, he also does something that I think is unhelpful and that he pits happiness and holiness against one another. As if God wants you to be miserable but holy in your marriage. 
or you can be happy in your marriage. Because that's not actually what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something different about the way holiness and happiness work together, which is why we need to hear Jesus' final words culminating in this culminating in this final statement in verse 11 where he says this These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full This is in the Bible Notice he says, these things I have spoken to you. What he's doing is he's letting you know that the purpose or end goal of all that he's been just saying about abiding in the vine and fruitfulness is so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In other words, he is not trying to produce stiff, stale, stuffy Christians who are always offended and who are always against things and who's always just like, they're just like unpleasant people. Because they're unhappy. Because there's no joy in them. He is not trying to produce godly but pretty joyless and miserable people. In fact, the exact opposite. He is saying this all so that your joy would overflow. So that your joy would abound. Is that not incredible? God cares about your joy. He cares that you have fullness of joy. He just wants you to find it in the right place. So he says next, he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And you may have skipped past this before. This is great. Just as Jesus has shared the love of the Father, love, uh, shared the love the Father has with us, so now he explains that he wants his joy. And what does he mean by his joy? The joy of Jesus, right? The thing that he has inside him. Jesus was the most joyful person that ever walked the earth. Did you know that? His joy was perfect. <coughs> and he's saying that he wants my joy, his joy, the joy of the perfectly obedient son to be in all his people, that they would share in the joy that he has, which is a beautiful reminder, isn't it, that joy is a fruit, not because Jesus wants just you to be joyful because you're supposed to. Like a sour God in the sky who says, be grateful and joyful for all I've done for you because you're just, you should. But to share in the joy of the Lord, that the joy that God has would actually be in the hearts of his people. He wants his children to taste and enjoy the joy that he has. Isn't that what a good father does, right? Like he wants you to taste what he has. And then he continues with, and that your joy may be full. Now, I don't know what image, again, you had in your head of, of, of holiness or godliness. But for much of my life, joy was not what came to my mind when I thought about holiness. Anybody else in that camp? 
In fact, I would have said that maybe the farthest thing from what a joyful person would have, would have been what holiness was. They're a person that's holy, but constantly miserable. But for much of my life, joy was not what came to my mind. And the idea that Jesus' desire in my pursuit of holiness was actually my joy or happiness in God would have sounded almost wrong. But there can be no other way to understand what he's saying here. Jesus wants you to abide in his, and abide in him so that you would become more like him and that as you grow to become more like him, you would have more of his joy in you. Jesus wants you to abide in him so that you will become more like him, so that you will have his joy in you. Puritan Thomas Brooks says it this way, an absolute fullness of holiness will make an absolute fullness of happiness. When our holiness is perfect, our happiness shall be perfect. And if this were attainable on this earth, there would be little reason for us to long for heaven. What I'm saying is this, church. We're never going to reach perfect holiness, perfect joy on this side of the cross, on this side of death, right? On this side of Christ's return. But he is saying that you can grow in it daily as you understand and walk and abide in Christ, as you become increasingly holy, like Jesus is holy, there will be increasing joy, but not in your circumstances, not in the fleeting pleasures of sin, not in any of those things, but in the Lord. That the one who made you is the one who has the ability to satisfy you unlike anything else in this world. And if you think you're going to be happier with just a little holiness, you have bought the lie of the enemy. He's been selling the human race for thousands of years. In other words, true joy, true happiness in God is not found in less holiness less obedience, less dying to self, less godliness, but in more. So don't believe the lie that the comforts of this life and the pleasures of sin are better than joy in God. Let me give you an example to hopefully help kind of clarify this. Have you ever heard an interview with an NBA championship team or the Super Bowl champions or gold medal winners, and they stand up on that podium amidst the joy and the adulation and the glory, and they were like, I wish I hadn't sacrificed as much. This isn't worth it. I don't know what I was thinking. I just wasted my life. No that when they stand on that podium, when they walk in the joy of what they have received, they will say everything was worth it. And they're doing that for a joy and for a crown that will fade and that they will one day find worthless. But he is calling us to pursue something 
holiness that will never, ever fade and a joy that will never, ever diminish. And so he is calling us to pursue this, not simply because he wants us to, but because he wants us to do it so that we may walk in his joy. And I want to give you two things. I think this is really important to, to what to do with this. Just two tips. First, hopefully this is clear by now. Let this lead you to pursue God more. We all, whether we realize it or not, are happiness pursuers. You may say, oh, I'm not. Yeah, you are. It's written into our constitution, okay? We, we pursue happiness. The question is, what do we pursue it in? Some of you pursue it in family. Some of you, it's comfort. Some of you, it's food. Some of you, it's things. Some of you, it's your hobbies. Some of you, it's success. Some of you, it's a relationship. Some of you, it's just peace. Some of you, it's just escape. Whatever it is, you are a pursuer of happiness. What I'm saying is that this should lead you to desire more obedience, more holiness, more Christ-likeness, more of him, more abiding, more fruit-bearing, more holiness. Don't settle is another way I'm saying it. God has more joy for you. He has more for you. Run after it. What have you got to lose? The fleeting pleasures of sin, the comforts of this world. So use this truth to fight sin and the fleeting pleasures of sin. One of the enemy's most powerful lies is that the pleasures of sin are better than holiness, obedience, joy in God. And if you believe that lie, you will stop fighting. And so I just want to encourage you to fight sin by returning to this reality daily that part of what the God, your God, desires for you is that you, that his joy would be in you and that your joy would be full and he's called you to pursue it, not simply because you're supposed to, but so that you can share in the goodness of his joy and that you can enjoy him more. And I think underneath every sin is this lie that this is going to be more satisfying than not walking in holiness. Or this is going to be more satisfying than walking in holiness, than putting to death that sin. And I just want to say, fight that with this truth. So as we conclude, I just want to remind you one final time Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to believe this. Help us to believe that our holiness, that our pursuit of you, that our growing godliness, our growingly dying to self, dying to the flesh, Father, that even in the trials that we encounter, if they lead us to pursue you more, we can have joy in because we know that they are helping us know the joy of the Lord more. And we pray, Father, that you would enable us with this truth to fight sin, that you would enable us with this truth to hunger and thirst after holiness, that we may honor you and be increasingly conformed into a people that bear much fruit for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.